Well, I want to continue with this study in uh, in in First Peter. If you'll turn with me to First Peter chapter two, uh, I'm doing this in a in an admittedly strange fashion. Uh, I've chosen to do this uh, the study based upon the seven foundational imperatives in the book uh, because it's a little difficult to outline and follow. I think so. Uh, so what we've been doing, we're in, we have been looking at the imperative number three, and we spent the last uh, two Sundays on this imperative because it's uh, lengthy. Uh, we looked at the imperative to submit to the government. Uh, we looked at it that we submit because for the Lord's sake. We've looked at submission to the government. We've looked at submission to our uh, employers and our relationship to them. And then we've looked at the home relationship, the husband to the wife, wife to the husband and mutual submission, realizing we all have different roles. And we talked, uh, as, we, as we concluded last week, we talked about the importance of, of, uh, of that relationship so that our prayers for one another are not hindered. And so today, as I promised, uh, First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, this is very rich, and I, and I joke with my wife, I'm becoming Terry, and I, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through many of these verses. I don't want to skip anything. So uh, let's look at First Peter chapter 2. We'll look at verse 4, and, and hopefully we'll get through verse 8. And uh, remember that this is going to be the doctrine. This is going to be the power. This is going to be the, the, uh, the work of Christ in our lives. It's going to enable us to be submissive to government and to be submissive to uh one another and to our employees. Uh, this isn't natural to us, but it's a work of Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we're going to see this doctrine uh, behind the imperative number three. And as I look at this, we're going to be looking at one of the most common and one of my favorite metaphors in all of the scriptures. I, I haven't decided if the metaphor of being sheep or the metaphor of Christ being our rock is, is my favorite metaphor in Scripture. They are obviously the, the two most common metaphors in Scripture. The metaphor of Christ being the rock is in, is in Exodus, it's in Deuteronomy, it's in Psalms, it's in Isaiah, it's in, uh, it's in Romans, it's in 1 Corinthians, it's in Ephesians, it's here in the book of Peter. Uh, so uh, it's very, uh, it's a very common usage of a metaphor that describes the triune God. And I want to look at this as we look at this. Let me read it first. First uh, Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verses 4 through 8 as we look at the theology behind the imperative to uh, be submissive. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones, as being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who were disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble 
being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So first thing I want to look at, if you're, if you're writing this outline down, I want to look at uh, Christ the rock. If you're uh, outlining it, the uh, Roman numeral number one, Christ the rock. And then uh, point A underneath, that I want to look at the Old Testament metaphor of Christ as the rock. And uh, there are several different metaphors in the Old Testament for Christ. Uh, I want to look at the first metaphor, and I think the most important one, and that's this metaphor that Christ is our rock. And, uh, and in this rock metaphor, we see him as the substitute as a sin bearer for our sins. And I want us to, to, if we could, this is not specifically in the text. It's important and it's a part of the text. But if you would turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 17, as we, as the children of Israel have been by God's good graces released from the uh, slavery of sin in Egypt and they've been uh, allowed to leave through the work of uh, Moses as God is providentially leading them out. And we see them wandering in the wilderness, and we've got probably two million people or more scholars tell us, and they're wandering in the wilderness, and we know in the wilderness is harsh conditions, it's hot, and there's no food, and there's no drink. So the people, as they commonly did, uh, were complaining because they were thirsty. And so... Uh, we have this teaching moment where Moses uh, seeks God uh, as the people are tempting God, not trusting God to provide for them. And we see this in Exodus chapter 17, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. Exodus 17, verse 5. Uh, Moses has had dialogue with, the, with, with God the Father, and Moses is crying out, what am I going to do with this people? He, he's at his wits end. He obviously can't provide for them. And we pick it up in Exodus 17, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod which which you struck the river and go on. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. So this is a beautiful metaphor. It's a picture of Christ being the rock. And we see this, that God is showing us in his word that God uh, is the substitution uh, for the people. So we see him, we see God. He tells Moses, you take in your hand the rod. This is the rod of judgment, it's called. It's the rod that uh, Moses is using to uh, to part the waters with, uh, both the Red Sea and then later the Jordan River. Uh, it's the rod that turns uh, the plagues on Pharaoh, and it's the rod that's going to be used to strike this rock. And what's important to see is what God says. Look what he says in verse 1. I will stand before you there on the rock. So he's identifying himself. Uh, with the rock, and then as Moses is told to strike the rock, that's a beautiful picture of the substitutionary work of Christ. Christ is the rock, and he has been struck, and when he is struck, he is bearing the iniquity of his people. He is becoming their atonement. He is becoming their propitiation. He is becoming their redeemer, 
as he is absorbing the wrath of the holy God as he is being struck by that rock of judgment. And then, of course, we see the beautiful picture when Christ is struck, uh, the flowing waters of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is symbolic, of course, of this literal water that comes out of the rock. So we see as Christ is the rock, and this is this picture, foreshadow of the Holy Spirit. I think it's important that we see that. And then we see, uh, to support this, we have another instance, and it's found in, in Numbers uh, chapter uh, 20. Again, the nation of Israel is complaining. They're wandering in the wilderness. They're thirsty. Uh, they're complaining. They want to go back to Egypt, you know, just a pretty typical of us. Uh, and so we see again uh, God is going to miraculously provide water for the nation of Israel. And we see this in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, we see that in verse 7. And so instead of the striking the rock again, God tells Moses, you speak to the rock this time. We see this in, in Exodus 20 verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, take your rod, you and your brother gathered to congregation, speak to the rock before their eyes, and the rock will yield water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So, so Moses took the rod as the Lord commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebel. Must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice uh, with his rod, and water came out abundantly in the congregation and the drink. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Because you didn't believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, you shall not bring this assembly into the land. So Moses was not able to go and lead them into the promised land, because he disobeyed God at the uh, Mount Kadesh, and what he did wrong, he was told to speak, but he reacted in anger. Uh, he was rebellious. He usurped God's authority and said, must we bring? Uh, so he took credit for what God was going to do, him and Aaron, and then he hit the rock, and we know from, from Scripture that, uh, that Jesus Christ is to be struck one time. He was struck once for the sins of men. He bore the sins of men as he went to the cross, and he, he, he suffered once, as it tells us in Hebrews. So this typifies uh, the error at Kadesh, typifies that the, that the rock needs to be struck one time. And so we see this, and I could go on and on, but this is just the first metaphor uh, that Christ is the rock. If you don't believe that that's what the metaphor is intended for, uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, Terry used this as a text for one of his sermons, I believe, three weeks ago. As a matter of fact, I read it, uh, but it was uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We see as a good hermeneutical student, we let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 that what I've just been alluding to in Exodus and Numbers uh, is picture of Christ. So we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So we see that this is a metaphor, this rock is a metaphor for Christ, and we see this. Uh, so that's uh, number one thing I want to bring up about the metaphor of the rock, uh, that it is 
that he is a substitute uh, for the sins of his people. Uh, the second thing that's more in line with the, with the text uh, is this fact that the rock is foundational to believers, point B, that this rock is foundational to believers and it is a stumbling stone to unbelievers. So point B, it is a foundation stone to believers and it is a stumbling stone to unbelievers. And then what Peter does is he quotes from the Old Testament. Remember, a part of the uh, receivers of this book are, uh, are converted Jews, those who have been converted by the Holy Spirit, and they would be familiar with Old Testament text. So we see this in verse uh, 6. Uh, he quotes from Isaiah 28.16, he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, and then he quotes again from Isaiah 8:14. So he says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will be no means be put to shame. To you who believe, he's precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected is a chief cornerstone, and it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So we see Jesus, uh, to the believer, is foundational, uh, and of course to the unbeliever, he is a stone of stumbling. So as we look at this, I want you to notice uh, some very eye-opening things. Uh, first of all, verse 6, I lay in Zion. This is God the Father speaking about his Son. This is God the Father's Precious opinion about his son. This is God sovereignly foreordaining his son to be the sin bearer for his people. This is going to dovetail. When it says, I lay in Zion, this is God the Father saying, I have preordained my son to die for the sins of his people. Remember we said uh, when the angel uh, when Jesus was announced, thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. So this is uh, uh, God the Father saying, I am laying in Zion, in Jerusalem. Uh, I am going to bring my son, and he is going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to die for the sins of the elect Jew. and He's going to die for the church, and uh, I'm going to do it. This is First Peter chapter 1. Verse 20, which we talked about probably, uh, incredibly six weeks ago. He indeed was foreordained from the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days for us. So we see God the Father in his plan of redemption, which he in the triuneness of himself accomplished before the foundation of the world. I lay in Zion. And we see uh, this picture of the plan. Uh, if you want to look in Psalms 2, I'm going to do this, but I think I will. Uh, Psalms 2, we see this messianic psalm, and we see this union of purpose between the Godhead, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And he says uh, of his son Jesus in Psalm 2, verse uh, 7, I, the Father, will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will give the nations for your inheritance 
and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter. This is a complicated prophecy. It has two parts. First part is the first advent when Jesus comes to die for the sins of his people as a humble servant. And then the second part of that prophecy, of course, is when Jesus comes the second time at the second advent when he comes to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years and he will be established the theocracy that has long been prophesied for. So we see this. God the Father has chosen his son and he says, I have laid him in Zion, point one. Point two of this uh, is that he is rejected by men. If you go back to verse four, uh, we see Jesus is a living stone, which I'm going to get to in a second, that he's rejected by men. So uh, as one of my commentators said, there is a, as a, there is a, there is a chasm in opinion about the son, the father has laid his son to be a cornerstone, and he is precious, and he is elect in his eyes, but in the eyes of men, he is rejected, and he becomes a stumbling stone, and he becomes a rock of offense. And the the commentator went on to say, there is often a variance between God and men, but never is that variance more acute than at the uh, appraisal of Christ. So we see the Father appraising Christ, obviously, is precious, and we see those who reject him, the disobedient. Their appraisal of Christ is very different. And, of course, we know from Scripture that that appraisal of Christ will be uh, the determining factor in their eternity. So we see that. Uh, so we see that he's, uh, he's rejected by men. Look at uh, the word, uh, of course, uh, in verse 6. He's laid in Zion by the Father. He's a chief cornerstone. He's elect. That means he's chosen by God, and he is precious. That word precious in the Father's eyes, his opinion about his son, means that his son has invaluable worth. His worth is inestimable. And uh, in the Father's opinion, uh, the opinion that matters, the preciousness of Christ's precious blood, the innocent blood shed, has a precious, intrinsic, uh, inestimable value. And uh, as it tells us in Ephesians, forever we're going to be singing his praises as we realize the grace of Christ Jesus. So this cornerstone is precious, chosen by God, and that precious cornerstone is laid by God. And and this concept of a chief cornerstone, this is a very fascinating this word uh, found a uh, chief cornerstone. The word literally means it's the stone that sets the foundation. It is the stone that squares the building. It is a stone that controls the lines of the building. Now, one of my commentators says it is the, it is the, uh, it's the, it's the, the chief cornerstone held the two walls together. And uh, he went further on to say, and I love this analogy, uh, especially in Ephesians 2.20, where it talks about the coming together of the body Christ, Jew and Gentile together, and there's no difference. He said that is a picture of how, what the chief cornerstone does. 
as the chief cornerstone aligns the two walls that formerly opposed each other. So we've got the nation of Israel, and we've got the Gentile community, and the chief cornerstone unites the two, and now we are one in Christ. And so I think that was a beautiful picture. And another one that I hadn't heard before, you may be interested, the chief cornerstone was used to anchor the gate as uh, as the gateway was the entrance into the Temple Mount area. So if you want to if you want to pursue that angle, you can say that, uh, that that Christ is the door, He's the gateway, He's the narrow gate. So all of these analogies are uh, just give us a bigger picture of Christ being the chief cornerstone. And uh, uh, see that uh, who Christ is and who we are in Him, and uh, this enables us to be submissive. Any comments about this? Uh, you're free to comment. Uh, anything before I get into uh, this living stone? Any comments about uh, the chief cornerstone, the electness of Him, the preciousness of Him, the fact that He was laid by the Father for the foundation of the earth? Any comments about that? Any comments about that? Uh, if, if not, I want to look at, uh, at, at, at be point uh, C under under Christ the Rock, and I want to see that he's the living stone. Uh, this is uh, beautiful in the Greek. It is so, it is so uh, specific. Uh, we don't have this in the English language. One of the reasons why Christ came in this fullness of time, because the Greek language was here. And we just, it's just such a beautiful picture. Uh, we see in verse 4, uh, coming to him, this, word, this phrase, living stone. Now, in the scripture, uh, there are three words for, for rock. Uh, Jesus named Peter Petros. Uh, he named him rock. Uh, that's Petros. That's a, that's a rock that would separate a rock from sand or gravel or or a mantle, or whatever you want to differentiate the two. It's also uh, can be used from the term uh, Petros and Petra. Uh, that word Petros is just a stone. Uh, it's nothing special about a stone. It's just laying in the field. It's just something that's part of the uh, topography, if you will. So we have these words, Petra and Petros. But when it says he's a living stone, uh, this is fascinating. The word is lithos. Lithos, and, and this is uh, completely different than a random stone and a, uh, just a common stone that you can find in a field. The word lithos, when Jesus, when it says coming to him, which is Jesus, uh, he's a living stone. That word stone means that he is a prepared stone. And that word means that he has been specially shaped for his place as a chief cornerstone. So Jesus is unique in that he is a prepared stone. He is uniquely qualified to be the stone. He's not a random rock. Uh, just not anyone obviously could have saved that people. He had to be perfect. He had to be sinless. He had to be without blemish. He had to be God, and he had to be man. And so we see Jesus, this living stone, he's the lithostone, uniquely qualified as our high priest. He's uniquely shaped, and he's prepared to accomplish the task 
he was given. So when it says we come to him as a living stone, uh, we understand uh, the, the uniqueness of Christ as the metaphor of stone is applied to him. And then that word living obviously means that he is uh, alive from the dead. One of my commentators said Christ is the living stone, not just because he's a living person, but because he's alive from the dead. God set his cornerstone in place by the resurrection. As the risen Lord, the stone possesses and it imparts life to those united to him by faith. So I love that comment uh, from one of the commentators that I read after this week. It's just that the resurrection of Christ uniquely qualifies him uh, to be the living stone. And uh, he, the living stone, imparts life to us. And he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the source of life. Life originates from him. God is chosen in him to, for all the fullness of the Godhead to dwell bodily. And so we see him as the giver of life. He's the living, prepared stone, uniquely qualified to be the chief cornerstone. Take a deep breath. What do you think about that? Any comments about uh, the metaphor of stone in the Old and the New Testament? Peter is big on uh, the word living. You remember he used the word living hope. Uh, he used the word living word. And uh, in his great uh, testimony of Christ in Matthew 16, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So uh, Peter, one of Peter's favorite words is living. And Christ is the Living stone. Any any thoughts about this? Any questions? And uh, time is quickly getting over me already. I got 20 minutes. Anyway, uh, now we've seen the, the 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 theology of the rock, the metaphor of the rock, the analogy of the rock. Now let's look at uh, our responsibilities. Let's look at the results of our association of being in Christ. Let's look at that, and we're going to look at that in some text. Uh, look back up to verse 4. This is going to be the our responsibility, the results of us being in Christ the rock, is he has bore our sin, and he has bore the penal judgment for us, uh, uh, for the Father, and he's reconciled us to God. Uh, first thing we see, uh, the first phrase out of the book, out of the, out of the shoot, verse 4, coming to him. This coming to him is uh, is in present tense. That means this is not the initial salvation of our souls. Uh, this is not the regeneration of our heart. You know, we are set apart and we come to Christ through the regeneration of our hearts as the Spirit works in us and gives us faith. Uh, that this is not what this means coming to him. This is not talking about the salvation uh, the initial salvation. This is uh, this is a continual, habitual, daily coming to Him every day. This is the uh, phrase that is is prevalent in Scripture when it says, "Draw nigh to Me, and I will draw nigh to you." This is the Scripture that says, "Seek first the kingdom of God." 
first and all these things will be added to me. This is seek me with your whole heart. And if you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. This is uh, Psalms when it says, as a deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after you. This is the picture of a believer who continually comes to Christ on a daily basis. After he's initially saved, this is a picture of you and I as he is progressing us in sanctification, as we are cooperating with him, as we are in him initially, but then as we read his word, as we pray, as we are obedient, as we do works which evidence our true salvation, as we continue to come to him. This is what he talks about in Hebrews in many, many verses. I'm going to give you these verses, uh, but for time's sake, I'm not going to read them. This is what it means to draw near to Christ. Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 7.25, if you're writing these down. Hebrews 10.1 and 10.22. Hebrews 11.6 and Hebrews 12.22. Just verses that amplify what it means to come to Christ, to draw near to him. And so that's what it really means. Uh, And, of course, this is going to be in conjunction with verse 3. Those of us who've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, those of us who've been saved by grace through faith, we now have an appetite for him. We have new desires. We have new wills. We have new we're a new nature. We're a new creation. Uh, one commentator says, as babes that have tasted that the Lord is good, the natural dread of coming to Christ has been removed. And now we repeatedly and freely draw near to God. So that's what it means to come to the living stone, is we continually come to him as he creates conformity to him in each one of us, okay? And then it says, this is beautiful, it says, coming to him as a living stone, but precious, verse 5, ye also as living stones. Because of Christ, because of his work on the cross, now we are like him. Terry mentioned this in the sermon several weeks back. We are little Christs. That's what Christian means. So now we are in Christ. And so we are living stones also, okay? We have now his unique nature. We are through the new birth. We are united with Christ. His life is imparted to us. Uh, We are new in Christ. Uh, The old is passing away. Everything is becoming new. We now have access to the Father through the Son, And so now we're in Christ. We're united with Christ in his death, and we're raised with him in his life. And so we are like him, and we are living stones, okay? Anybody have anything to say about that? Any comments that we follow the living stone, we come to him, and we literally are little Christs. As he works his grace in our hearts We are empowered and enabled to not be dominated by sin anymore. We walk in the Spirit. Uh, Anything about that that you would like to comment on? Anything about that? Wow. 
Thank you. Let's look at uh, let's look at this next one. And if you think this is good, let's look at this one. Verse five: Your living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Now this is going to be in contrast to the physical house, which was the temple, which was at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a place where God presented himself. His presence was made known in his Shekinah glory as it went from the temporary tabernacle in the wilderness to the permanent temple in Jerusalem where God presented himself, where sacrifices were offered, where the high priest would go in once a year and offer sacrifices uh, to God in the Holy of Holies. But this spiritual house contrasts that. We know that uh, from Scripture that uh, the law couldn't save because men were unable to hear to the law. But this is a spiritual house. Uh, we are a spiritual house. We are the body of Christ. That word spiritual is the same word we get Holy Spirit from. It is uh, pneumaticos. That pneuma is breath in its spirit. So when it says we're a spiritual house, uh, that means we belong to the Spirit. We were formed by the Spirit. We were regenerated by the Spirit. And we are indwelt by the Spirit. So we are the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. Uh, I like what the commentator said. He said the spiritual house is designated not as a place for worship, as the physical temple was, as our physical church building is, but the spiritual house uh, is a place for divine inhabitation. So hallelujah, we are inhabited by the divine. The Holy Spirit indwells us, okay? So that would, that's what it means, we are a spiritual house. And then the phrase, are being built up, I could... I could go on for the rest of, for an hour on the different opinions about this. Let me shorten it. We are being built up by God in the passive sense. He is working in us and he is building us up into this body, this spiritual house. And then there's a connotation. We have to cooperate in being built up. And so not only is he building us up, but we have a role in this. He doesn't zap us with he he zaps us with being in Christ, yes, regenerated, yes, but then there is this process that we go through, sanctification. We are being built up by him. That work is going to be accomplished in each one of us, and he is going to finish the work that he started in each one of us. He began it, he will finish it, sanctification. We will have glorified bodies one day. So that's this process of built up a spiritual house. And that's the who we are as a nature. We are now spiritually a spiritual house. And then how we function now is that we are a holy priesthood. We function because of the spirit indwelling us. We function as a priesthood. And what I mean by that, there's this concept in Christendom uh, it's one of the doctrines of the of the church, this doctrine, priesthood of believers. And what this doctrine is teaching is, is that in contrast to the Old Testament priests, 
we have a new, we're in a new covenant with Christ. So we, uh, we no longer need the special offer of priest to meditate for us and to mediate for us. Scripture tells us in 1 Timothy, I believe it's 2.5, there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So as our high priest in Hebrews, who has gone before us, who's once sacrificed himself for sin, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies, we can now come boldless to seek help in time of need. The veil has been torn, and we can approach Christ without the aid of a confessional, without the aid of another priest who has to make sacrifices for us because we can't approach God on our own. But now that Christ has done that, we can come boldly with access to the throne to seek help in time of need. So we as a priest, we have direct access to God because of the work of Christ. That's in one way we're a holy priesthood. Uh, the second way is, uh, is uh, I love what this commentator said, every believer is a priest for himself as we can directly access God, but every believer is also a priest for every other believer. So we, as the Old Testament priests used to do, <coughs> we have the obligation and the privilege of praying for one another, bearing one another's burdens, confessing our faults, and then petitioning our Father through Christ for one another. So we pray for one another, uh, we encourage one another, and we petition the Father through the work of Christ by the Holy Spirit for one another. So in that sense, we're a priest uh, for each other. Uh, we have a uniqueness uh, as priests that were not uh, common to the Old Testament priests. Uh, we do have similarities. We're messengers. We get to impact sinners. We get to walk with God. We we are ordained to obedience. We're prepared for service. We're clothed for service with the righteousness of Christ. We're appointed for service. We're elect to service. So in that way, we are like the Old Testament priest. But in a new way, we are a holy priesthood, direct access to the Father because of the Son's work. Hallelujah for that. And then, uh, hallelujah for that. And then, uh, and then it says we are to offer, uh, if you look at this, as I conclude, because time is short, uh, part of our function as a priest, as a holy priesthood, because we are a spiritual house, we get to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't do this often, but if you don't have a pencil, I want you to write this definition down by MacArthur. The best I've seen, very short, very concise. What is a spiritual sacrifice? Everybody got a pencil? And I'm going to do it in the, in the, in the three parts of this mention. First of all, when it says that you're high priest and you're offering up spiritual sacrifices, here's what he's talking about. God-honoring works, comma, God-honoring works. This is what a spiritual sacrifice is. God-honoring works done through because of Christ. So we've got God-honoring works, comma, done through because of Christ, comma, under direction of the Holy Spirit, 
under direction of the common of the Holy Spirit, comma, through the guidance of the Word of God. So when it says that we as high priests in our function as spiritual houses, we offer up spiritual sacrifices to God, we are doing this, God-honoring works, done through and because of Christ, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and the guidance of the Word of God. Great, concise definition of what a spiritual sacrifice is. And this is what all of us as high priests function. This is part of our function as high priest to God. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, uh, for time's sake, I'm going to give you the spiritual uh, sacrifices now. I will reiterate them and explain them next week. Uh, God get us out of here at 10 o'clock to get us to church. These spiritual sacrifices are offering our bodies to God. Offering bodies to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Praising God, Hebrews 13, 5. These are spiritual sacrifices. So we offer our bodies to God as living sacrifice that are our reasonable act of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We praise God, Roman, uh, Hebrews 13, 15. I think I said 5, 13, 15. 13, 16, doing good. Doing good is our spiritual sacrifice. Doing good. We're saved to do good works. That's part of our spiritual sacrifice. We share our resources. Hebrews 13, 16. We'll talk about these in great detail. We bring people to Christ as part of our spiritual sacrifice. It's a God-honoring work. It's done through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit anoints and, and enables us as we, the Word of God enables us. Sacrifice in our own desires for other people's desires. That's part of our sacrifice. Praying is part of our sacrifice. And I'm going to go over these in great detail next week. Uh, uh, I had no idea how short of a time this would be. But uh, uh, that's going to give us a good start on who we are in Christ, the metaphor of rock, who we are as living stones, and our role as priests and the sacrifices that are acceptable to God and as part of our duty and function as priests. Uh, anybody have any comment or question? Uh, I gotta let you. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you in church. If you're able to attend, we're going to be having communion, and uh, I look forward to seeing you guys uh, in an hour if you're able to be there. Uh, so uh, let me close. Uh, get you out at ten o'clock so I don't get in trouble. Father, thank you that you have laid your son Jesus Christ as a chief cornerstone. Thank you that he is precious. That he is elect. And I thank you that he is our chief cornerstone. He's prepared specifically for the purpose for which you sent him. Thank you that we are living stones. I thank you that we are holy priesthood. I thank you that we are a spiritual house. And I thank you that we get to offer spiritual sacrifices to you. And they are acceptable to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, bless the service. Bless our worship. Watch over our people. In your name I pray. Amen.